welcome to The Possibility Project, an open conversation series where changemakers talk about the big questions we need to answer now. Your hosts are Devin Davey and Heather Hiscox, together with technical help from the nonprofit Snapcast. This series empowers the listener to shift systems, rebuild structures, and foster equity in the social impact sector. So welcome, everyone. We're so excited that you are here with us today. And um, as I mentioned, if you want to rename yourself, let us know who you are and where you're Zooming in from. We're excited to get started. Um, We started Possibility Project to really begin more disruptive conversations across the sector. Um, Devin Davey and I are the co-creators, so we'll talk a little bit about who we are and what we're up to. But honestly, we wanted to um, have a space that we could take the conversations we were having in dark corners with other disruptive thinkers and friends and colleagues, and we wanted to bring it out into the larger social impact community. So that's that's really what we're focused on doing. Um, so this is our ninth episode, and a lot of folks don't know. I think we need to do a better job of sharing, but we have a YouTube channel that has all of the previous episodes and recordings. So Devin's going to put that in the chat. So if you've missed any of them or you want to watch them again or share them with others, they are there on the YouTube channel. And so you can check those out. Um, We are going to use introduction guidelines that were provided to us by the amazing Nova Ren of Genesis Healing Institute. And he has given us permission to share those. And so if you um, look in the chat, you will see a link to a Google Doc that has how Nova Ren welcomes people into his community when he does these Zoom gatherings. So we're so appreciative to have that. And um, so I wanna introduce myself. My name is Heather Hiscox. I'm the CEO and founder of Pause for Change. I use the pronoun she, her. And um, just to describe for those that might be visually impaired my appearance, I have longish red hair with a lot more gray than I had last year, and um, I'm wearing a blue jean shirt and some fun earrings, and I have blue eyes and freckles and kind of a round face, so um, I'm so excited to be here with you. And we will have a transcript available that we are using Otter to produce. So once we do a little tweaking and edits of those funny things that it transcribes, um, we will put that out into the email that we'll send to everyone and follow up. So you can look at that. And we want to honor that um, with the land that we're on. So I am on the land that was kept and held sacred by the Odom people. And I honor these ancestral keepers of this land where I'm now living and I honor their descendants who continue to breathe sacred life into our earth. So if you are not aware of where you are, what land you occupy, um, we want to drive you to um, a phone number that you can actually text. So Devin's going to put that in the chat. I'm not going to read off the numbers, but if you send a message, a text message to this number and you put in your zip code, it will tell you the land that you occupy. And I know I've been having um, a lot of fun doing my research. I've been an Arizona native, essentially, but I've been learning a lot more um, about history and culture and the land that I'm on. So I encourage all of you to do that as well. And we also know that territory acknowledgements are just one small part of disrupting and dismantling colonial structures. It's just one piece of it. So it's our, our starting point there. So to introduce um, a little bit more about who we are, uh, Devin Davey is a strategy consultant and my co-creator, and she helps female founders and impact leaders get unstuck 
by co-designing and implementing people and process solutions. So Devin's just going to post a little bit more about who she is, um, a link to her website, and a couple examples of projects that she works on. Um, I work with nonprofits, local government, and philanthropic foundations as Pause for Change to help them pursue solutions more efficiently and effectively. So to address challenges or pursue cool new opportunities in much better ways with using less resources. So that's essentially what we're both up to when we're not doing a possibility project. And like I said, we wanted to bring together a community of disruptors. Um, that's why the LinkedIn group is really fun because it's folks that have sort of raised their hand and said, I'm here, I wanna keep talking about this. And then folks that join here, We've um, compiled a group of over 1,200 people that have been watching videos online and joining us live for the different episodes. So it's exciting that we're growing this larger community of folks that really want to dismantle parts of the sector that aren't really working for all of us and just exploring what we can do differently. So, oh, let's say before we mute ourselves if you haven't already. So the goals for Possibility Project, you can see on your screen. So we wanted to bring folks together, as I said, stimulate new thinking for deeper change, explore collaboration. And that's why this topic is so important to us. And the fourth one we've added pretty recently, examining our own role and transformation, because we know that it starts with ourselves. So we want to make sure that we include a little bit more action orientation in the work that we're doing. And I'm just going to take another second and talk through the agenda of what we're going to do today. So I'm going to talk through the why. We're going to hear from our speakers, our amazing speakers. Uh, we're going to do some Q&A and have small group discussions in breakout rooms. We're going to come back and synthesize our key takeaways and then talk about next steps. So I want to just talk about the why a tiny bit um, I work a lot with coalitions and collaborative um, groups and partnerships to help them use innovative strategies in their work. And I haven't seen a lot of really great <laughs> examples of super effective collaboration and collective action. It's been very frustrating. And I've seen a lot of the same dysfunctions arise um, again and again. And actually last year, Devin's going to put it in the chat, I wrote an article out of frustration of the 20 questions you should ask your collaborative partner before you get engaged, before you jump into working together and how we can better use empathy and experimentation in collaboration. So I hope you check that out. And the other piece of the why behind this is, as Sabrina Slade talked about in one of our earlier episodes, often we don't interrogate or talk about who has access to those collaborative partnerships and how power is distributed. She talked a lot about how organizations that are part of these collectives, especially if they're not the main convener and the recipient of funds, are getting pennies on the dollar for all of the trust that they bring to community, all of the doors that they open, all of the creative ways that they engage with stakeholders, tiny, tiny investments when the money is not really spread and shared equitably and the appreciation and respect and honor for especially organizations closest to pain and closest to community are not really recognized. So um, I think that's, a, that's something I just want to put out there is the why, and it's going to guide some of our conversations today around power and reimagining how we work together. So I am now going to introduce you to our amazing guest. I'm going to stop sharing so you can see their faces in all their glory. Um, we are going to introduce the speakers, but just we're not going to go through their whole bios because you can see that in the LinkedIn post and in the chat. 
which Devin has posted. But I first want to introduce Alnisa Algood. Alnisa is the founder and director of Collaboration for Good. And she's going to share an interesting story with us about all of her feline accommodations now that COVID's with us. So Alnisa, take it away. Hi. Uh, Yeah, so my story is, since I've been working at home, um, I mean, I worked home pre-COVID, but only like three days a week, and then I went to a co-working space. But since I've been here for so long, the cat wants to be in the office with me, and she's just been taking over more and more of my desktop space. I had a built out a L-shaped desk because I tend to use up a lot of room. And she's taken over pretty much this half of the L. Like you'll see, like she has a regular bed and food and stuff over here to the side. You may not be able to see it. And she has a grass bed where the sun comes on her in the afternoon when she's laying there in it. And so that has caused me to one, add more space. Now I have like a U-shape area that I work in, but the positive side is I have a ton more plants um, in in the office as well. So it's kind of like both an office in a green retreat area. Sometimes I just pick up a book and walk over to my little love seat and kind of read uh, in like the corner. And so that's very nice for me. as well so I love it yeah cats are demanding well absolutely and whenever I see Alnisa I'm always like how many plants do you have oh my gosh it's like it's amazing in there it's so pretty this Um, room is up to like I think 40 but some of them are really small like little fairy plants so I love that I love that and Alnisa's in Madison uh, Wisconsin so just give you some where, where she does all the great gardening with all those plants Um, So Alana Irving is our our next amazing speaker, and she is a serial social enterprise founder of Tools and Communities for Radical Collaboration and Building Commons, particularly related to money. And Alana has always been focused and driven, and she's going to tell us a story about that. Um, Yeah, when Heather asked me to think of some sort of tidbit from my story, what I said is, uh, I rebelled against my parents by studying Japanese. I was raised in a Jewish Taoist household. Both of my parents studied Chinese and Eastern philosophy uh, in college. And that was a big kind of shaper of their worldview and passed that on to me. And then so when it was my turn to go to college, they were like, oh, you know, learning Chinese was so hard. I don't think you could do it, you know, joking. But so, you know, I'm going to go one better and learn Japanese. So (laughs) that was my major in university. Um, And my first job out of college was as a translator in Japan. And that was like a whole chapter of my of my story and kind of really shaped my worldview in some ways. I love that. I love that. So great. And do you want to tell us all a little bit about where you are in the world? Sure. Um, I am calling in from Aotearoa, New Zealand in Wellington, where it is about to be summer and tomorrow, and we're all walking upside down. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's it's really cool. I was, I was raised in the US, so I kind of feel like um, I span several different cultures and then have lived in several other countries in between. And um, yeah, it, it gives me a little bit of a, a, a view on different sides of issues, I think, sometimes. I love that. Oh, it definitely brings perspective. When we had our chat 
with Alnisa and Alana in preparation. We have the honor we get to spend an hour with our amazing speakers, just Devin and I, just learning from them and just taking amazing insights and, you know, supporting and, and encouraging them around what topics we think will be most interesting. It's really lovely, both of their perspectives that they're going to bring with us today. So we're going to jump in and get started and start to hear those perspectives. So the two questions that guide every episode and really kicked off the project when we first started it was um, talking to people and asking, what dysfunctions do you want to disappear with the virus? But I think disappear from the sector. What dysfunctions do we need to get rid of? What can be opportunities for reimagination? And the second question is, what gives you hope? What's emerging that gets you excited? You know, what resources can we learn from? What examples can you share? Those sorts of things. So we're going to um, talk about those as well. So we're going to have Alnisa start. And Alnisa, you're going to answer that question of what are dysfunctions in the social sector related to collaboration and collective action? Uh, yeah, so I, I would say the dysfunctions that I try to work against, especially around collaboration, is that most people try to approach collaboration as how do you, how do you get teams to work better or how do you um, and it, most people approach collaboration as a productivity activity um, you know we want to we need to work with this organization and we want to do it efficiently um, as quickly as possible we want these types of outcomes and they don't spend the time thinking of collaboration as something that's really just about the people. So for me, collaboration is about the people that you're working with in the communities that you're trying to build. And it's not a fast process. It's a slow process because you have to kind of take the time and figure out one, who do you want to work with? Who are you inviting kind of um, into the room, to the table, or just to participate in any way? Who is it that you see the potential in to create new leaders? Because I think that's also another component of it. Um, the people that you work in, you're working with, I think in collaborations, all have the potential to become new leaders um, and new spokespersons for kind of whatever movement you're doing. Like they don't have to be the spokesperson for your organization. I don't think you should necessarily be thinking about what can they do for you as opposed to how can you help them grow and um, what opportunities that you can provide for them. Um, now, all that said, I have to say, I don't think I'm an expert in collaboration <laughs> whatsoever. And definitely some of the things that I'm working on in collaboration are very hard and I'm not good at yet. Hopefully I'll keep on getting progressively better at some of the things that I want to do. But um, I mean, some of the stuff that I think I am fairly good at is things like social grace <laughs> um, and serving with grace. And I think that's just true because of one of my favorite books 
Um, and I typically don't tell people I have a favorite book or a favorite music or things like that because they so rapidly change in my life. But I can honestly say that one of my favorite books that I go back to frequently is called The Ice Palace That Melted Away. And it's, I think of the chapters more as a series of vignettes by um, Bill Stumpf, who was, uh, I think, a product designer while he was still alive. But it basically talks about lost virtuals, that virtual virtues that technology and then just growth in an industrial area, um, not an area, but the industrial age and now the technology and the information age have started to whittle away at. And as one of these chap, one of his chapters is a just about grace in itself, which um, I like to think about in terms of, you know, um, how do you, when do you take the time to acknowledge, listen to, and learn about the people that you're working with and to bring their ideas into play for what it is that you're trying to accomplish, um, to reimagine what it is that you're trying to do from something that you've learned um, from them. And um, yeah, I guess like that's my, like where I think about that is I think that collaboration for me is about the people and it is about to some degree bringing grace to how you work with people, even if it's slightly ungraceful, like, you know, I fail sometimes. It's like, sometimes I get busy and somebody's saying something to me and I'm just like, what is it that you don't understand? <laughs> You know, <laughs> and it's just like, you know, and it's, it's sometimes you just need to take the time to listen because they can't really explain what it is that they don't, that they don't understand because they don't understand, right? <laughs> they don't have like the expertise to then go back and, and really say that I don't know these steps or I, I don't know what you're really asking for because I don't know what the steps are in this project. And, um, and then other times it's something totally different. Maybe something in their life is going horribly and you're sitting there working together, trying to get something done without dealing with the fact that something in their life is going really, really bad um, for them. And and giving them like the leeway to, they don't have to talk about it to me, but if they do to actually be present, listen to them and give them to the freedom to kind of work their way through that. And sometimes just acknowledge is, you know, like, okay, maybe this is not what you should be working on today <laughs> um, for that. Um, and I would say, well, I'll save the rest of it for hope, I guess. <laughs> um, for that, I wasn't quite certain how how much you wanted me to speak on this topic. I love it. It was great. I, the things that you brought up, I think, are so important because you talk about compassion, right? You talk about humility. 
You're talking about grace and listening and empathy and acknowledging that you're going to meet people where they are, right? You're going to, they get to show up as their whole person and then you can pull out their superpowers and support them. And I love that. That's great. So Alana, we would love to hear from you. What are some of the dysfunctions you see with uh, collaboration and collective action work as we do it right now? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a broad question. Um, but what comes to mind for me is something like a failure of imagination or uh, being stuck sort of with blinders on, focusing on a certain way of being that is, is not the only way. Um, I'm teaching a university course right now with a, a bunch of group of young people um, and it's about collective leadership. And so on the very first class we were you know introducing ourselves and talking about this topic and one of the one of the people was like oh yeah but oh, maybe maybe some of that collaboration stuff would work in a small group but once you start scaling up an organization you have to have a hierarchy and I'm just like okay yep hold that thought you've obviously haven't thought beyond that but we're going to in this course um, and I think that so many people you know they're born into their family and that's a dictatorship and they go to school and that's a dictatorship when they go to work and that's a dictatorship and like when are we supposed to have this experience of empowered equitable collaboration so we can practice these skills and if we don't practice those skills how are we supposed to bring build on them to build up to running a whole society democratically as we're supposed to be doing but obviously not quite living up to um, and it, much less truly imagine a post-capitalist, post-colonial, post-racist, post-hierarchical, post-patriarchal society um, and, and how everything would be. So um, a lot of times uh, when you put some of these crazy ideas out there, people will go, oh, that's not realistic. And whenever people say that, I, I often think of this uh, quote from one of my favorite science fiction authors, Ursula Le Guin. I'll just read it out here now. Um, we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now, who can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine real grounds for hope. We need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. So that phrase, the realists of a larger reality, is what I think of when people say, oh, that's not realistic, because it's like, maybe it's not realistic in that narrow frame. Um, but uh, yeah, so sci-fi is a big place that I draw some uh, inspiration from. Um, I love utopian sci-fi, and there's almost none of it out there. And I think that's just such a comment on where we're at in our society right now, that people are obsessed with these dystopian sci-fi stories about, you know, galactic wars and apocalypse and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of shows and books. But you have to really search for those utopian stories, because I feel like people actually find them harder to imagine um, so some utopian stories are like The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, um, Walk Away by Cory Doctorow, uh, The Fifth Sacred Thing by Starhawk. These are stories that that paint what an actual alternative could look like. But even in those books, it's the story of a tiny utopia fighting for its existence against a huge, like, capitalist, coercive, violent dystopia next door so I think even then like the, the only like truly expansive utopian sci-fi that's reached the popular imagination is Star Trek 
which classically is that story of, okay, it's like, it's post-capitalism, it's post-equality, like we're going to go explore the universe. And I've always loved that. And they even ruined Star Trek now. The new Star Trek is like, oh, it's a dark, gritty, dystopian story of an individualistic hero. And it's like, no, please, like, come on, people, we can do better. So yeah, it's that failure of imagination uh, uh, and dreaming that I think stops us from first practicing those skills of true collaboration on a small scale in our everyday lives and then building up to doing it on a large scale in society. And I just think there's a transformational inflection point coming, surely. It could be a really apocalyptic one. It could be, you know, climate change apocalypse and the implosion of democracy and everything. It could be us actually making it and leapfrogging into that utopian future. Either way, we're going to have to sit in circles and figure it out and have the skills to sit in that circle and figure it out and have the skills to build up from there to a larger scale. So either if you believe in the utopia or the dystopia, I think we need to practice the skills now. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that. And it it's so true of where, how can we nurture? Like, where do we go to build these skills? Right. Does it start with early childhood and, you know, in our families? How do we how do we incorporate empowering practices and reinforcing what Alnisa was saying? Like, how do we build little leaders and young leaders with empathy and with grace and with listening skills and collaboration skills? And then, yeah, how do we scale that as they're in education? How do we transform educational systems to be more supportive and empowering of new forms of learning and more expansive thinking? And how does that translate? I love that because I, I think, and there are quite a few questions <laughs> that I think a lot of people are kind of like, really, how does this work? Someone has to be in charge. You all can't run amok. You know, like someone has to be accountable. How are we going to pull this off? So I think when we talk about, I would love for you to, to take us away and keep going, Alana. Like, how would you answer the second question around What's really, what gives you hope? What examples have you seen? What can you point to that can, that can address those questions that you typically hear and that you typically get? I would love for you to keep going deeper. Um, yeah, well, I'm a very kind of, uh, much as I just talked about um, far-flung sci-fi visions, I'm like a very practical, hands-on person who, who needs to be inspired by the really near-term proximal next step, not just the far-off vision. So I think I, and I'm also really susceptible to kind of disillusionment, like if a problem seems too big and too hard, I just feel like, oh God, why even try? So I really want to keep focused on the things that I feel like I can have an impact on. So I guess the two places in my day-to-day life that I'm drawing a lot of motivation and uh, tr- trust in humanity from these days um, is one uh, where I live in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's a different kind of society. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say it's any kind of utopia and Kiwis will be the first to um, you know, hammer that we have lots of problems here, blah, blah, blah. It's true. But I think there are uh, very practical seeds of a different kind of society here and I'm I believe that I can uh, in, contribute to making it happen so um probably people have paid attention a little bit to the news and how we dealt with COVID and how politics are uh, a bit different here and that is great like it's amazing to read the news and actually be like oh yes this is great this headline makes me happy for most of the headlines like that was not an experience I had when I lived in the U.S. Um, and also to feel like Oh, if I if I decide, you know, for the issues that I feel like I care about, I could actually conceivably make a difference. Whereas like I look at people working in 
very big complex countries who have that and go, wow, that's amazing. I'm glad you're doing that, but I, I would be crushed if I tried to do it in that society. Um, and then also, of course, uh, I guess the immediacy and vibrance um, and presence of indigenous wisdom here um, in Aotearoa is is really clear. And it's I like I play like I don't know if anybody knows the game series Civilization, where you like you're like an ancient civilization, and then you build up to the modern era and stuff. And sometimes you end up being like you're Sumeria or Babylon, and then you get to the modern area, and you're like a Sumerian flying fighter jets, and it's kind of this thing. But then here in New Zealand, it's like our indigenous people are, they never went anywhere. It's not history; it's now. And they're uh, it's like, well, what if the indigenous people had their own television networks, and what if the indigenous people set the law of the country, and we get to see that in real time and it's like incredibly inspiring um and also the legal frameworks we have here because our country is based on the treaty of waitangi which is a, a equitable agreement between the crown and the colonial visitors and the indigenous peoples and of course that agreement has not been lived up to lived up to in thousands of ways and you know promises have been broken and there's a lot of work to do but the the agreement itself which fits on a page is incredibly inspiring as uh a post-colonialist way of founding a country on on equitable terms, retaining the sovereignty of indigenous peoples, um, and I get to I get to work with them. I get to build tech. I get to build internet technology, and I get to um, really be shown how this different f- view can influence every different part of life. And um, yeah, we do things here like legal personhood for nature is something that comes out of um, the Maori way of uh, the worldview, basically, and that you know, gives a river or a mountain legal personhood who can sit then sit around the table that we're burning um, <laughs> and, and actually have a, a stake and things, things like that I find really inspiring. And the other thing I take my motivation and hope from is just my day-to-day work. So uh, that's right now with Open Collective, which is a tool for groups to come together and collaboratively raise money, manage money, and do that transparently and really in a really lightweight way Um, and what we've seen uh, this year is a massive explosion of mutual aid groups especially in the US and Europe Uh, like when COVID-19 hit um, mutual aid groups popping up everywhere and so our system allows them to immediately get up and running and be able to get and spend money without having to form a legal entity without having to figure out oh you know Cause it's really like, it doesn't work. If you start a neighborhood group and then it's like, Oh, we're going to put the funding in your personal bank account and you have to pay income tax on it and stuff, whatever. It just removes all of that and, and puts it in a neutral space and lets you do best practice around transparency and managing money. Um, and so I, I've been inspired about how much as things are getting hard and there's unrest and challenges in different places of the world, everywhere that's happening, we're seeing the rise of these mutual mutual aid groups. Um, and then also like, uh, Black Lives Matter groups in the U.S. and people responding to the West Coast fires and, you know, just people really like as faith in our institutions has fallen. And, I, um, you know, that's something that I feel like a deep grief about. But uh, I can then believe in the positivity of that of that mutual aid and um, see how people are doing it day to day on the most practical level and, and help them in some small way. I love that. That is so that's so great. And I you have such an amazing opportunity to show that if you have the ability to shift perspective, you can create something different, right? You speak about that, but you get to live it. You get to see it in action. And so as much as we may feel constrained in the US, what we're working with and right now it's so tumultuous. 
I think it's so important to see examples and to have a more global perspective than as, you know, reaching outside of what we know to solve problems and see opportunities. So Alnisa, I would love to hear from you. Uh, what gives you hope? What's emerging for you? Or what have you seen really work well and that you've experienced around collaboration and collective action? Um, I think what gives me hope is, well, I guess I should give a little bit of more background. So the organization that I founded and work with is called Collaboration for Good. And yes, we work around collaborative activities, but our real purpose is to work on economic inequity issues. Um, and so we do that by in, predominantly in the social sector or with social impact organizations and individuals who want to create change in the world. And so we do that in a couple of different ways, but one of the primary ways is that we run a social good accelerator here and we work with predominantly black and brown women. Um, and then we're taking our time and adding new competencies to that, like people with disabilities, as we learn more about what things will trigger them losing livelihood as they start learning, uh, earning more income. And, and in some ways, we're doing two things. One, working around a system that's currently in place. And then two, building up people who will potentially change the system as they reach new, new heights and reputation um, for the, themselves as individuals. So um, again, for me, I think what inspires me and what I'm hopeful for is kind of this new collective generation of leaders. And what I mean not like necessarily a new generation, like, oh, Gen Z or things like that. Because um, we predominantly work with people who are Gen X and Y. So millennials, I don't think they ever gave a name to Gen X people, which is where I'm at. And, and then some like Gen Z. And, um, and so I think new the ability to transform with new leadership um, and then to work with new people to open them up to um, newer ideas, new ways to actually get to what it is that they, they want and to kind of start just thinking about stuff um, and reimagining. Does it have to be this way? Like Alana mentioned, like, can we create something different? So our founders and our social good accelerator, which we've had three cohorts for 72 participants through those co cohorts, our goal is to actually help them create viable businesses that pay them a nice living wage, um, livable wage. And we're typically arguing even here in Madison, Wisconsin, that they be, should be sh shooting for something like $75,000 a year. And we're, we're arguing that across the board, even for employees of traditional nonprofit organizations. And it's a big jump, but we're working mostly with people of color. And most of those people of color are women. 
and um, and there's just so much that can take a salary of fifty thousand dollars down to an actual usable income of like twenty eight thousand dollars, which is not really all that survivable here in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, you know, um, for that, uh, so you know, a strong like. You know, like if you accidentally have a child for whatever reason um, for it, um, if you have an unplanned hospital expense <laughs> and all of these types of things, all of a sudden, like you go from what people consider a quote unquote good salary to you're technically living in poverty again, right? And then our goal is to one, train them up to also get them to buy in to what is actually a, a kind of minimal viable wage for, for people and to get them to try to implement that in as they're adding st- staff um, for it. But we're also training them up to take on new leadership roles in the community. And like, we'll start, I tend to like send out like just a variety of opportunities, like we'll create opportunities within on our organization. You went through the accelerator, you know, last year or two years ago, why don't you serve on the advisory committee um, here now? Like, why don't you help me create like this peer program? So like there's peer to peer mentoring, um, giving people kind of like opportunities to participate and then to take the lead of some of that stuff um, that we're trying to accomplish. Um, and then we're also trying to get them out in the community. It's like, well, you know, so-and-so is looking for a new board member. Have you ever considered serving on a board, a nonprofit board? You know, um, it's like, you know, and the number of people, especially with, I think, um, black and brown women who have multiple doctor's degrees and who feel like, I don't think I'm qualified to serve on a nonprofit board because it's traditionally white men in banking or something like that, you know, and it's like, you have to kind of like just counteract like, you know, all of these like mental and systemic barriers that's there. Um, And so it is just about kind of growing the person and then also just giving them access to opportunities that, they may not have had before. Um, What we found as we're doing that is some of our people, they're taking advantage of that type of stuff really or really rapidly. Um, We've already had um, two people run for um, kind of city positions where they're sitting on different city committees or um, the various township kind of running things like that. We have, I think like a number of those people who are serving on boards or who have served are serving on other types of organizational committees that will make decisions around, are we funding jails or are we funding schools right? <laughs> and things like that. And so it's kind of interesting and amazing like to see people step up so rapidly, um, far more rapidly than I think than um, we expected. And so like sometimes we're running to catch up with them and it's like, oh, you're out there. How are we supposed to support you out there? (laughs) But um, 
I guess my thought around this, and I don't know if he actually coined the term, but he's probably the first person I've heard use it. If you know anything about Creative Mornings, um, it's here in the U.S., but it's a global kind of movement by like designer tech people and things like that. Um, and um, he worked also on um, a book called um, Get Together. Okay. And so his name is Kevin Hunk. Hunk? <laughs> I'm not pronouncing it right. Um, I think the book I listed as a resource, so it will be in like the resource list for for that. Um, but um, he basically has a term called progressive acts of collaboration, collaboration, right? And um, and I like it because it's basically just a series of six things. You're thinking about how do I accomplish things with people instead of for people. Um, how do, who am I inviting to participate? Um, how do I find new ways for them to contribute so that they get more comfortable in the space and that they start acknowledging that they can have a role in the direction of where you're going and what the organization or what it is that you're trying to accomplish ultimately is. Then figuring out ways to share ownership and power with the people and then, well, actually these should probably be reversed, assigning leadership roles <laughs> to them um, and then setting the stage for them to basically jump up, take charge, become the lead. And it doesn't need to be that they're the lead of your organization, but they can actually take what they've learned from you and create something totally new um, that is still pushing for the same goals that you're pushing for, but in, in different ways. And, um, and I've always liked the idea of that approach. It's not about necessarily having everything figured out up front. It's about um, learning about the people that you're working with and then basically coming up with ideas of what might work for them. What is it that they need to feel confident to participate? Um, you know, and it could be anything. It could be that they're going to work every day and like their boss just never wants to hear any of their ideas. So they're pretty certain nobody else wants to hear their ideas, right? you know, or they think their ideas aren't good enough or aren't valuable enough. Um, and so it may just be kind of like, you know, small reminders like that you're doing good things, you have great ideas, um, using some of their ideas and then acknowledging that, like, you know, in a small group, in a large group, um, publicly, if possible. Um, I think, you know, I think this is a Simon Sinek, Sinek, yeah, I think it says something like around um, a good leader basically gives out all the praise um, and accepts all of the blame for that. And, you know, and I, I kind of believe that, I mean, to a really large degree, it's something that when 
Um, I was in the Air Force um, and going through officers training and stuff that the Air Force like strongly kind of enforced for us. It's like, if you're going to be an officer, you have to take responsibility for what the people up under you do, right? You can't go back and be like, he did it. <laughs> it's his fault, right? It's like, you're the officer. It's your, it's yours, right? You own it. And there's questions. It's interesting. There's so many great questions for you both that are popping in the chat and there's accountability, like what environment. And so Devin's going to jump in because there's so many great conversation pieces. Devin's going to jump in and pull out some questions for the two of you so that you can go deeper um, of learning of what we were asking about. Go ahead, Devin. There's a beautiful tension that we're all living right now between the status quo and the desire for what's next. And there's a great question that Nate shared. Thanks, Nate. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to direct it to whoever has the energy to answer this. Um, how might we work to shift the current status quo that tends to be more hierarchical when we're in it versus doing it as an alternative paradigm and how do the two function together so i'll put it in the chat to reference for folks it's an it's a heavy one yeah and i don't know if i can go into all of the details i definitely think that some of that it will be more inspirational from alana um i'll be the drag your knees in the dirt type of person (laughs) for it (laughs) because i think you just do it a step at a time um, per, uh, you know, um, I'm not functioning in collective systems. I actually see, I'm trying to grow like and support new leaders. And, um, so I still use a top down approach occasionally. It's not that much of a top down. It's kind of like a small hierarchy of things. And it's mostly just to combat what happens when the person wasn't ready for what it is that you were trying to get them to do because stuff still needs to get accomplished right (laughs) and so it's more like the buck falls back to me or somebody or my staff for for that so if you know if we gave somebody too much responsibility or too much work or we didn't like really listen to the signs that this wasn't their area of interest or it wasn't a strong skill or things like that. It falls back to us. And that's something that we kind of keep in mind, like as leaders, this stuff falls back to us and we have to get it accomplished in terms of like the deadlines and the everything else. If we, if we push too far too fast. So we're the people who are digging I don't want to say digging the ditch, (laughs) but like we're the people like who will go out and do the heavy lifting if like, you know, if, if the people we're working with don't rise to the occasion and that happens. Um, Sometimes a lot of our people, I think do rise to the occasion, um, but sometimes it's like, you know, you push too fast, you push too far, or there's something going on that you didn't know about. And we're try we try to keep tabs on when we're 
offering people opportunities or things to do and stuff like that about realistically speaking, if this falls through, are we willing to let it go or who's going to then take over that, that activity? I love that too, because you're getting at the individual responsibility of us as leaders in a lot of ways. And so Alana, I want to shift that question to you and add on to it with another question that was shared from the group and speak to whichever one calls to you. Um, How do you shift the environment around these new leaders so that these folks are able to access power as well as addressing the status quo changing? Wow, big questions. I mean, I just want to say that I really agree with what Anissa was talking about, that um, in in order to support the growth of new leaders, I think you do need structure. You can't just throw people into the deep end completely undefined. If you're like, okay, you're a leader now, like that's not a really effective way to support people. Um, I think what I I wrote an article called How to Grow Distributed Leadership, which talks about a model where there's different levels that build on. It starts with self, well, it starts with the very prerequisite is an environment where shared power is actually possible. And uh, assuming we have some of that and that the desire is there and the buy-in is there, because if if not, then people are just going to be banging their heads on a brick wall. But assuming that's there, then it starts with self-leadership, talks about how how do you do leading others uh, in a way that's about being a servant leader and facilitative leader and and stuff that I'm sure people in this call are experts on already. Um, And then it talks about leading leaders and how do you grow leadership capacity across an organization if the organization doesn't have a leadership hierarchy ladder. Um, And then it talks about ecosystem leadership in terms of how do we spread these ideas between networks and into society. Um, But I just want to say that, yeah, it's it's absolutely not easy. And I think that the people, people need to have a very high level of self-awareness of their own accumulation of power um, and how power dynamics are flowing in the group in order to, in order to understand how to empower someone, you really need to understand your own power. So you need to understand aspects of your privilege, privilege that are accruing powers to you, whether those come from, you know, historical structures or whether that's actually just your personality or you're louder or you're extroverted or you're uh, <clears throat> we're the older sibling and are used to telling people what to do or whatever it is, you got to be, it's, and it's, and it's not one time thing. It's a constant practice. Power has to be something that the group can openly talk about without defensiveness. Um, and then deep levels of empathy for other people's relationship to all of those things and where the barriers <clears throat> might be for them. And then a systemic mindset about what in our system is causing some people to rise into more power and some people not and really think about those pathways. So that's what I, when I was talking about that leading leaders level of that model, it's really about that. Um, and when you, when you get to that moment of like, okay, this thing is getting bigger than any one leader can hold on to. We're going to scale. You have a really critical choice. Are you going to bring in middle management and start building a pyramid? Or are you going to really commit to these deep practices of growing distributed leadership and truly true empowerment? And so that can be thought of on the microcosm level of your group, or it could be more on the macrocosm level of like, how how is our organization intersecting with structural power dynamics or like, why is it that when we were trying to recruit a programmer, we're getting to, you know, 125 year old white men and no one else, you know, these are things that you really have to think about. Um, and I'd say, you know, some things about how we do things here in Aotearoa are helpful with that, like, because the treaty is a present part of organizational life. And like, every, 
pretty much every organization will have a policy about treaty partnership and how are we living up to our treaty obligations and every government department talks about this and every like hiring job ad will be will will reference treaty responsibilities and treaty partnership and knowledge of Tao Maori and I'm not saying that every organization is doing a good job at that or that we're doing enough to any level, but just the fact that it's present in a lot of conversations, like even like I, I work through a little, a tiny little co-op. It's just like, it was three of us. Um, but we sat down and went, how are we being treaty partners? How are we uh, I- integrating uh, Tao Maori and the, the rights of indigenous people into our work? And that actually led to changes in how we were doing things. And now my partner works for uh, on a Maori, a really cool Maori tech project. And it's just, just having that conversation constantly, I think is a really great way we do it here to connect up those big social power dynamics with the power dynamics present in your small group and your organization. Sorry, that was like a massive rambling answer. I hope I actually answered the question. <laughs> that was amazing. Heather, do we have time for one more question? We have about three minutes before we want to go into our breakout room. So the rooms are ready, but if there's a short question, okay, keep the response quick to three minutes. All right. So whoever has, um, between Elnis and Alana, whoever has some energy around this uh, question, I am going to pull a question that y'all shared in the chat. And it's around um, uh, equitable pay structures. So what are different models you've seen of equitable equitable pay structures and what questions should be asked in making new standards? In like two minutes? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. um, I think I'm a strong proponent that... um, and I don't think this is a full on structure, but just kind of a guideline that the top level person in any organization shouldn't make more than twice of the lowest level person in, in the organization. But otherwise I kind of focus more in on really trying to figure out what someone could live on in the area that they're in. Um, without having to forego, you know, things like occasionally going out to eat or somebody asks them out to a movie or a concert. All of these things are kind of expensive these days. And if they're ending up take a home pay is something, I mean, not the take home pay, but after they've paid all of their expenses, if they only have like a hundred dollars left, then that's not the price. (laughs) That's not like the rate you should be paying them. They should be, there should be something higher there. I mean, and I think this is just something a lot of people will go on like market values. And I think you need to do something better than that. Like PayPal, not only just introduce um, allowing people to get their access to their pay at the end of the day, if they need it so that they don't have to do payday loans. But they also did a survey of their employees and found out that even though they were basically paying them more than what the current market value were, that they found out an embarrassingly number of the of their employees were living in cars because they couldn't afford a home. Um, 
who were using payday loans, like something like 40% and even of middle mid-level staff. Like, so think about the janitors <laughs> and things like that. And I think those are, those are things that I think people need to investigate and not just assume about like, so when I talk about like minimum salary level for individuals, I'm thinking about it for Madison, Wisconsin. And, and I also put for a female in Madison, Wisconsin in the equation, because Technically speaking, men can like probably live off less, but they rarely have to. <laughs> I can add add quickly. Um, I absolutely think what Anissa said is a great, a great and important way to think about it in terms of like living wage and fairness and all of these things. And I guess another another tool that I've uh, used to kind of get everybody on that page is full transparency about all the finances in the organization. Now, these might seem kind of radical, but I don't, I don't feel like they are. Um, and basically putting everybody in charge of the budget together. And if you talk about, well, this is how much money we have. This is how much we want to get done. This is the strategy that we've collectively agreed. This is the people. These are the, we know each other. We know each other's needs. We know each other's lives a little bit. Um, you, I think what you will find is people will surprise you with their ability to think uh, from the perspective of the project and the organization, not just of themselves, and to take into account a lot of complexity and to make good decisions together. Um, I created an open source software tool called CoBudget, which is a way that people can come together and collectively decide how a budget's going to go. I've also been uh, in like a co-op member, like a co-owner of a cooperative where everybody is a co-owner. So you all think on that level of, well, we're all here to achieve something bigger than ourselves together. And the organization is the vehicle that we're going to do it. How are we going to go about it in a way that is also uh, aligned with our values and aligned with the impact we want to have in our community and on, and on the people in our organization. Um, So yeah, I guess, yeah, some of these things might seem radical, but I would say, don't be scared. Don't be scared to go for it because people will um, absolutely surprise you with their ability to step up and make those hard decisions together. And then everybody feels like they have ownership. I've seen people voluntarily take pay cuts. I've seen people voluntarily fire themselves because they're not the one to take the organization forward. I've seen people uh, voluntarily have a, a large pay differential because they can understand why that is that way. And they've decided that together. So I think it is possible. Love that. Love that. So what we're going to do next is we're going to go into breakout rooms and uh, we just want to have a couple quick ground rules for that time together. Um, They're not recorded, but everything that's shared inside the breakout room is confidential. If you're sharing in the chat after your conversation and uh, you want to let us know like amazing stuff that came out of your connections with others, just keep it de-identified. We don't want to hear a specific name and a specific thing that they said because that is private. Uh, We want you to share talking space. You'll have 15 minutes and I'll set a timer and send you little love note reminders. But if you tend to kind of jump in, maybe step back. If you step back, maybe step in so everyone can have space. And we will assign a facilitator. So the facilitator is the person that most recently took a walk. <laughs> so whoever took a walk today before this call, whoever is most recent, you're the facilitator. So it's your job to make sure that everyone has equal access to talking space. So um, that's what we want you to share. And the prompt that um, Devin's going to put it into the chat as well is what's the message or like, what have you heard today from our amazing speakers that is really resonating with you? What's really standing out to you? Um, we want you to share that. What connects with you? You share that as a group, you'll have 15 minutes and then we're going to come back 
We're going to ask for some of your responses in the chat, and then we'll have our speakers uh, wrap it up and take us away. So I'm going to open up all the rooms right now. If you have any challenges, come back to the main room, and I will help you if you get lost along the way. Okay, here we go. Thank you for joining us. Please do join us for the next live possibility project so you can take part in the breakout sessions that follow. All sessions are recorded. Please visit possibilityproject.org and connect with us on LinkedIn so we can invite you to meet more incredible impact influencers and make new connections with people who care about what you care about. This has been Possibility Project, produced in cooperation with the nonprofit Snapcast.